Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you are listening to another episode of Vodka O'Clock Podcast from AmberUnmasked.com. You can sponsor the show and my work at Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked where you can also learn about uh, the Fairweather's Mysteries. There's three books of those out so far. And you can keep up with the adventures with Gus. That is um, my cat, who basically I'm like his biographer. So um, so he's got a sort of noir-ish blog series going over at AmberUnmasked.com, and it's a lot of fun. So joining me today is Eisner-nominated writer and scholar A. David Lewis, who we're going to talk about Kismet, Man of Fate, and other projects that he's got going, which just sound really, really fabulous. So for the first time, welcome, Dave, to the show. Hey. I'm ex- I'm excited to be here. Vodka to clock. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I th- I can't even – I was trying to think of when we were first connected online. I'm like, I don't know. It was like forever. It, it, it was like forever ago, and uh, you know, I, I think you can quote me if I'm wrong here, but it may have been J.K. Woodward. Okay, uh, I collaborated with him uh, back in the day before he did Fallen Angel with Peter David, and now the Star Trek Mirror Universe. And I think he introduced me uh, to you and your reviews and and your writing. Oh, that w- might have been it, because I was trying to, um, I was trying to think, I'm like, I know there was somebody last named Lewis in Comics Workshop, I'm like, I don't think that's the same one. I don't, know. Yeah. I, I don't think that, I don't think that Lewis was me, maybe it was a distant relative, but, uh, yeah, I think I got, uh, recommended to your work, word of mouth, and I've been enjoying it ever since. Aw, JK's a great guy, he just had a birthday too, so I hope that went well. Happy birthday, dude. Yeah, and he's um, in Star Trek land, like seriously seems every day just more immersion into Star Trek world. You know. He's doing a fa- he's uh, doing a fabulous job with it. I even um, noted while he uh, he's doing the Mirror Universe uh, stuff with Star Trek The Next Generation, and I saw some of his uh, character designs, and even though he buffs up the guys, he buffs up Captain Picard and and uh, Will Riker, he even does something really subtle to their eyes. Like, their faces aren't any different. It's the same, same facial structure, but their their eyes almost seem less kind and, and more uh, ferocious. So he gets right down to an amazing level of detail. Yeah, and if you got to work with him, that's just, you know, like, kudos there, props, because... Oh, I, huge stroke of good luck. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the joy of working on a project with him. It's fantastic. Yeah, he's fabulous. And um, so we are going to talk about your projects and writing and, and what it means to be Eisner nominated. That's like a oh. big word in, in comics, you know, uh, Eisner. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's an awesome thing, but I try not to let it, you know, overinflate my ego, um, but it's it's a nice uh, acknowledgement, right? That uh, that Will Eisner, I actually got to meet once, and uh, of course I adore uh, his work and kind of his legacies. To to be, you know, connected in any such way is just an honor. Yeah, that's I, I that's fantastic. Um, I will say I snuck in the back door of the Eisners. That is, that <laughs> is to say, um, I got nominated for best scholarship or best uh, academic work. So I didn't have to go head to head against people like Grant Morrison, Tom King, right. or 
or, uh, you know, you name it, name your favorite author here. Uh, I got to hash it out in my own little niche. But still, scholarly work cannot be easy. Like, how many years do you take to work on some kind of, you know, book detailing comics? I think, um, you know, on average, it takes me about three years uh, at the average, but at the outside, it can take closer to five to seven. So I'm not saying there's not effort or time put into it, definitely. Uh, I'm just saying that, uh, yeah, I feel like Matt Damon or Ben Affleck winning the Oscar for Best Screenplay rather than for their acting. Right. Yeah. So getting nominated for the Eisner is just as cool. And I didn't have to um, uh, get in the heavyweight ring. Yeah, I understand what you mean, because um, there's so much name recognition with. uh, Oh, yeah. With certain people. And and then there's other categories I look at. I'm like, I have no idea who any of these folks are. And, um, you know, that's just, a you know, it's a. It's a big industry sometimes that feels really, really small when you're when you're mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. And that's not to suggest that other people nominated in, in that category aren't uh, incredibly diligent workers and doing amazing stuff. It's just to say that it's much more specialized and I don't have uh, the same fan base rooting against me if I were uh, – ever considered for, like, best story or best writer. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you're, you're not getting trolls on a daily basis. <laughs> not, not for that, at least, no. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, so the, some of the, some of the work, um, we're going to talk about Kismet and, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons that all of your, your things seem to f- fall in line here is that you work with, um, Muslim superheroes, and Muslim characters, and that's something that there's been a big outcry for recently to get this stuff. Like, you know, it exists in other countries, so why haven't we seen it in our, you know, very media-centric, Hollywood-centric Western comics other than Ms. Marvel, you know? So um, tell me about the, you know, working with on Muslim characters and how you came up with uh, with Kismet? Well, it, it, it started off a lot wider. Like, when I worked with JK, just to, to go back to that, I was much more concerned writing about uh, myth and supernatural folklore. Then I uh, sort of uh, narrowed that to looking at comics and religion, which is what I do a lot of my scholarship on. And then finally, we get to the tip of the spear, which is looking specifically at Muslims uh, and comics or Islam uh, in comics. When I was doing research on that for the academic side of my life, I was trying to determine who the first Muslim superhero was, in, uh, particularly in U.S. publication. And I came to find this really remarkable public domain character, Kismet. Man of Fate. Uh, he had been part of Bomber Comics back in 1944, which featured a whole bunch of different, you know, C-grade superheroes, maybe Z-grade. <laughs> but I thought there was something so endearing about him. It was really out of character almost uh, for, this, for this figure to be written with a kind of dignity. Uh, to, there was something very attractive about him and not just horrifically stereotypical. 
Um, but he had fallen into the public domain since 44. The, the publisher, I think it was uh, Elliot or Gilberton, um, they went defunct and they moved on. Uh, and so when I was doing this research, I said, wow, this character's been untouched and untapped, and I just found that uh, incredibly tantalizing. Uh, so when the call went out from uh, Broken Frontier, the website Broken Frontier, about doing a Broken Frontier anthology, just little short stories that they would put together and, and offer as a Kickstarter, which ultimately was successful, I said, wow, this is my chance to do something with Kismet, to, to bring him back or give even an end to his story. So he moved sort of from my scholarly life into my creative life, and uh, I wanted to do more. I wanted to keep exploring this character in a modern context. I mean, so I had to do the whole Captain America bait and switch of how do you move a character from 1944 to 2017. Um, but I, now I get to do that uh, weekly uh, a Wave Blue World is featuring two pages a week of Kismet Man of Fate. Uh, it's a whole hundred page or so storyline that they'll be collecting and printing in late 2018. So it, it's been a journey, but it's been really exciting. That's, that's so great because I definitely, you know, had that Captain America flash through, mm -hmm. through my mind as I was reading it because I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm like, oh, you know, they, they talk about 1944 and France, uh, you know, during, during the war and everything. And then uh, it's like, but he's got this interesting attachment. And I, <laughs> you know, and I'd like, I'd like to know more about this because there are some characters that, that have this, um, uh, like not multiple personality type of thing because that's that's very different um but almost like i think the sentry kind of had it you could even say the symbiote venom and spider-man had it uh, um uh, like firestorm like i just don't understand the character firestorm um i'm like how did two people become a different th like what is happening and so so with this i'm like okay well this to me makes more sense it's sort of like um you know like his spirit like you know walked into this um kadar and Cutter, yeah and that you know and like they swapped like at first it was just supposed to be like a walk in and then you know, trauma happens. There's a little bit of, uh, I mean, one other uh, comic trope I would allude to here, in addition to the Captain America man out of time idea, is also the Rick Jones Captain Marvel sort of switch. I mean, for them, they used to bang those uh, the bands together oh, in order right. to switch places. Uh, but I did want to take a, a modern American Muslim man, that, that's Cutter, and I wanted to have a 1940s, you know, Western-aligned superhero who's also Muslim occupy the same space. Right. Uh, and have them look at, it takes place in Boston, uh, shortly after the Boston Marathon bombings, and to look at contemporary Boston and ultimately Trump world now, through this dual set of lenses, through this, uh, you know, adventurer from another time. And I guess you could call Cutter the, the mild-mannered Bostonian. He has 
a bit more of a backstory that I hope to uh, explore further that's, of course, written out privately on my laptop, but hasn't yet entered uh, the public kismet stories yet. Um, in a way, I have to say there's a little bit of autobiography there. Um, while I wasn't, you know, born Muslim, I was raised by in a Jewish family, I did convert uh, to Islam in 2012, and um, I'm still a very secular, pop culture uh, connected guy. It's just changed my um, awareness to a degree. So Kismet isn't about selling Islam or, or anything of the sort, but rather um, just offering further perspectives, two perspectives and perhaps a third, my own, uh, through the dance of these characters, the exchange of these two characters and the, and the evildoers they thwart. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, there are some surprising twists and, and things in there because you mentioned um, that, that there are some real-world events that take mm-hmm. place, and the first thing we, you know, we come to is the, the Boston Marathon bombings, and, um, and then we have the election, yeah. and there are moments when you, you keep referring to her and her and her, <laughs> and, you know, and then there's a twist – but Trump still wins, and um, and the defeat, like you just sort of, you know, and these characters, they just they feel that same defeat that a lot of us felt anyway. Like, no, this can't be happening. This can't be real. And and you've taken um, Kismet, who who's just like, I can't believe I have to go through this again. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Um, it was, you know, it's just one of those things where we've seen these, like, old grannies at protests holding up their signs, like, I can't believe I'm going through this again. Um, so at I, the moment. Oh, there you are. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, you blacked out a little. Um, so this is, so you've, you know, you, you chose, um, first of all, two adults. So it's not like mm-hmm. the magic of Shazam, uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, where it's a little boy who has this innocence quality. And even though when he's, um, I, I always grew up calling him Shazam just because I guess there's... I get it, yeah, of course. Uh, so, you know, Shazam always had some innocence to him. Um, but it was really like, we're going to take these um, handsome white guys and utilize all of this religion and belief and customs and just, like, paint it on them. Right. You know, and so here, you know, we've got these, you know, actual practicing Muslims in different ways because I love the the sister – and it's like Dina, Dina yeah. and is it Rabia? Is that how you pronounce Rabia, it? yeah, that's Rabia. right. So I love these two other characters that really are like the big parts of the story that we know. Like we're up through chapter three so far, like sort of in mm-hmm. chapter three somewhere. So I, you know, I just love how how Dina is like, she, you know, she kind of like. There's this whole explanation, like. You know, I like I was a bad Muslim. I didn't pray. I didn't do, you know. Right. And and she just talks about how the world affected her and she felt like she just needed it. She needed um, an anchor to her faith. 
I thought, yeah, I thought originally when I, you know, first said, you know, I'll do creative stories for Muslims, I thought I was going to be writing Kismet uh, up against the Charlie Hebdo attacks or yeah. against, you know, hate crime and Islamophobia in general or the Boston Marathon bombings. I didn't know I was going to be writing about him and about Qatar and Dina and Rabia in Trump world, right? I, I couldn't have imagined that. But like you said, uh, I've had so many reactions to uh, how the election went and um, the policies that have been attempted since then and reactions that I've heard from any number of people that it was very easy to integrate into the story. In fact, it sort of, um, uh, the story was ready for it. Uh, I, I don't want to be all mystical and hand-wavy or anything, but there is something really uh, serendipitous. There is some kismet here to me uh, outlining this storyline and working with a wave blue world at exactly the same time this is all going down in our real lives. So it was just, it, it was therapeutic for me, but I'm hoping also uh, contributes to a, a really good narrative. That's good, yeah. And, and like you said, it's some, sometimes the right thing comes along at just the right time. Um, let's talk about your creative team here, because I definitely don't want to uh, exclude anyone from, oh God, from yeah, the process. Um, so I might possibly butcher some names, but the artist you have, is it Noel or Noel? It's Noel. It's oh. Noel Tuzan. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, Noel was Eisner nominated before I even was. Wow. Um, yeah, no, he's, he's a really incredible artist, and uh, the thing I particularly like about him is he's Canadian. Uh, he uh, worked on uh, Elk's Run, was I think the first time uh, he, he leapt into my radar. After that, he worked with uh, Arkea on... Uh, tumor with uh, Josh Hale Fielkov. Yeah. And uh, uh, since then, he's been doing pieces here and there. And I just said, someday we have to work on something together. When I first approached him for this, it was just for that short story, that one Kismet short appearing in Broken Frontier Anthology. And I kept coming back to him <laughs> just over and over until finally he said, no, no, I'm on board for what, whatever this turns out to be. Okay. Um, so he's been fantastic. He has designed so many of these characters. He's helped uh, the story beats. He creates the most impressive layouts. I mean, he's a true collaborator uh, in this. And uh, what adds further richness to us is uh, – uh, Rob Cronenborg, uh, uh, his coloring is just so um, deep. I think I said rich before, but I'm going to use the same word again. It is so deep, and it's and it's rich, and he finds just the right palette to express the the tone of each scene. Mm -hmm. uh, he's been with me since the beginning of this. We started doing lettering with uh, uh, Cal Nuttall from. Uh, Morpheus Forge, and he is a, uh, a terrific guy and did some great lettering for those earlier stories. For this A Wave Blue World self-contained um, story, we went with 
uh, Ghost Glyph Studios' uh, Taylor Esposito, because he was doing so many of the other uh, simultaneous titles for A Wave Blue World, and he has not disappointed in the least. In fact, he's sort of opened me up to a few more tools that even I can use in the storytelling because he can uh, wield the letters so effectively. Yeah, he's been on the the show before, and um, and I was so happy to see his name there because I it's like in lettering there are a couple of you know real rock stars. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about the Eisners, and it's like you know it's like okay, well, <laughs> which one of the two is it going to be? <laughs> it's, it's like is it Nate or is it Simon this year? <laughs> um, right, and I will say that he just got um, Tyler just got nominated not for an Eisner but for. Uh, the Mike Ringo Awards. Uh, he's nominated for Best Letterer there, and I, and I think it's uh, so well-deserved. Oh, okay, yeah. I was like, you said Tyler, and I'm, I was like, Tyler, the editor or Taylor? Taylor, Taylor, Taylor sorry. Taylor. Tyler's my editor, Taylor's my letterer. Yeah, uh, I'm, like, uh, I'm publisher, like, yeah. Great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I so, frequently send them the wrong emails. I frequently send I'm not lettering sorry. emails to my publisher and publishing emails to my letterer. So, yeah. uh, easy mistake. Yeah. Um, but I definitely, real serious nod to, to the art and coloring because the, um, when you're doing, like in the, in the very first chapter, like I mentioned, you have the kismic character doing this walk in to another body, and mm-hmm. then they like switch, swap places, Freaky Friday, whatever you want to call it. And that can be something that's really hard to understand if the art is not perfect and that the, the coloring is not perfect. Like there was a great transparency to the colors. Um, mm-hmm. And the palette, like you said, the palette is it's um, it's limited, but it's really refined and specific. It's you know, especially like, um, and I don't know if this is intentional, but there's there's like um, an earthy quality to, to the palette. I think that uh, I imagine that's intentional because that's really where we started when we were doing the first. Uh, story for Broken Frontier Anthology. And, and I should mention, I keep referring back to that. That's going to be part of the print collection next year. So no one's going to feel cool. left out ultimately. Uh, in fact, a few stories are going to be included there. Uh, but yeah, from the beginning, it had uh, that quality. And, and like you said, um, it's very easy for me to write Kismet and Cutter switch places. Yeah. Um, that's an easy line to write, but uh, having this team and working with uh, really uh, talented and incredibly uh, diligent artists is what makes it work. I can, I can say cosmic space battle ensues, um, <laughs> but the challenge then falls to them, and they have, as far as I'm concerned, never failed. Yeah, that's you know it, it's really um, high praise to the, to all that the team and um, and Taylor definitely makes everything so so readable for me because if I can't read through a comic I know it's the lettering mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know I, it's it's just one of those things where it's like you know especially if there's a whole string of balloons like going across the whole page because there's only two people on the page like we use utilizing one of those things and i have to kind of follow like 
okay, this person's starting the conversation, then this person, and then, you know, right. it's, you know, there's just some helpful bits in there. Um, and, and plus you have a, a narrator. So. Yeah. Although I should say that if they, people haven't read uh, the story that's online yet, um, I think the narrator is going to surprise them. I, it's not just your stock narrative voice, uh, you know, disembodied voice. It's tied to the story. Uh, but at the same time, it performs the narrative function of uh, cueing people when it is or what the tone is or what, you know, metaphor is unfolding here. Um, but I didn't just want to be, and now back to the story. Meanwhile, in Metropolis, uh, I, I wanted something that uh, contributed to the message of the story, too. Well, you, you know, the message of the story, I want to mm. I, I I find out overall, since you've got 100 pages and I've only read, like, you know, 20-something. Yeah. Um, you could have changed, this is fiction, you could have changed the election, you could have done anything that you wanted. Right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. If I gave myself permission, I could have done that. Yeah. Right? So, you you know, so what is the message? Because, like I said, I mean, I'm really attached to these so-called secondary characters right now. Maybe it's a girl mm -hmm. thing. I don't know. But I really, really love them. I, by the way, I love that just in and of itself. I um, you call them secondary characters. They're not the titled character, but... But they're lead uh, I characters, this, yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted these to be prominent, female, uh, multi-dimensional characters, so I'm thrilled that you're, that you're drawn to them. Great, good. Um, yeah, because I definitely want more of them. I don't want it to be like, you know, okay, she's on the sideline searching for her brother something or other and then kismet comes and saves the day or something you know like you know you're not you're not going to get that story you're, you're going to be disappointed if you think that's yeah going to turn out no, I, I they're I very intelligent women that. yeah they're they're both very intelligent skilled women so cool thank um, you yeah so so what's your so what is the the message that you're hoping to bring with you know if we get to see all hundred pages yeah uh, you started to touch upon it earlier, um, and that was we have this character that saw the rise of fascism um, already and was actively fighting against it when it was clear-cut in World War II, or at least the, the mythology of World War II has subsequently made it clear-cut. So I wanted to uh, bring at least the spirit of that character to... Uh, what we're facing today. Um, if there's a message, it's, uh, and this comes across in, I think, the end of chapter uh, two that's already online, um, no one's going to do this for us. No one's going to save the day. Uh, in as much as I'm writing a superhero character, he is... Um, He's almost turning his back on superheroism in favor of uh, Vox Populi, uh, in favor of, you know, the, the popular movement and working together. Um, so I wanted to merge those two ideas, that the idealism of the superhero genre is great and, and is attractive and is inspiring, but it doesn't work when faced with 
real world issues. I imagine if there was a death ray in low Earth orbit, then superheroes would be very helpful. But um, when we have a contested election and uh, potentially uh, corrupt portions of the executive uh, or the threat of, of war, it's going to come down to people. And I, very late in my life, uh, have only come to activism in the last five, maybe six years, um, because I had that luxury, right? I had the the white male uh, luxury of just getting to rest on privilege and not feeling all that threatened. Um, I'm woke, uh, yeah. to, to use a, a term, or I'm, I'm shaken awake, and uh, I wanted to explore that through the fiction, even as I'm trying to enact that in my real life. So to create a, you know, a fictional world where Trump was not elected, he was not my candidate, um, or Islamophobia doesn't uh, exist, or North Korea isn't threatening, um, I'm sure there are other creators that would do great in those scenarios, but <laughs> rewriting but me, history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, alternate histories are fun. I love East of West, right? I love, um, you know, the civil war going down a totally different way. Uh, and then the added mysticism of that. But, um, I need to address the environment that's around me, uh, even in the fiction. I think that's brave, honestly, especially since you're, you know, you're uh, openly stating in today's day and age, and I know that's like a dumb thing to have to do, but it's like coming out as gay. You, know, yeah. you, you get to openly, you know, practice a faith that you want and and make fiction about it, where in some other countries it would, you know, be banned or burned or whatever. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm coming from a really privileged position. I mean, I can walk down the street here in the U.S. with, sure. with few identifiers that um, put me in immediate peril, uh, either as a man or a Caucasian or a college elitist guy. Um, but but um, I haven't um, – I wanted to challenge that, um, and I'm trying to do that. In my real life, um, I don't think it's brave in the way that coming out is or, or transgender might be or or uh, wearing a hijab to a mosque. But it's my uh, at least at least disproving my cowardice. Sure. Uh, rather than demonstrating any sort of bravery. Sure. OK, I, I can understand that. And uh, and the thing is, you've you know, taking this into fiction, we're not only talking just kismet here, you've worked on other projects. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, um, you know, this, we're, we're going to get into that in, in a moment, but um, if anybody wants to keep following kismet, like there's a, a specific Twitter account for it, kismet 1944. Um, how, how are you doing marketing wise and getting the word out for kismet? You know, um, it's it's a what we'd call a soft launch, right? Okay. Um, well, yeah, because you have the book coming later. So. Exactly. I mean, right now we're trying to. It's the whole idea: give it away free now, so that they have to pay for it later. 
Um, if people find that they, by reading it online, have enjoyed it so much that they want to own it, you know, hold it and put it on their bookshelf, right. then ultimately that would be that would be ideal. But right now, where uh, word of mouth is important, podcasts such as your own are important, social media uh, is important, and we'll keep building into a more formal marketing campaign as we get into 2018 and uh, have the last pages of the story really uh, on deck. Okay. Um, and are you um, – because obviously, like, uh, a Wave Blue World has uh, – it's pretty robust on its own, and, and they mm-hmm. seem to at least be helping with that instead of, like, are you, you know, you having to do everything? Are you running every social media account and – um, no, that's that's actually the the dream part here. Um, I'm getting really just to focus uh, for the first time in a very long time on just the storytelling element, and I can jump in and do promotion anytime. But it's not a one man band uh, anymore. They uh, make sure the artists and letterers and colorists get paid. Uh, they make sure it's on the site on time with no glitches. And like you said, they are, have a growing, uh, presence, uh, in, in the small press. So, uh, it's just delightful for me to not be administration for once. Are you going to conventions as well? Um, well, yeah, I have been, but again, in sort of a stealth manner. Um, a Wave Blue World might set up, because they have a, a, a number of wares and a number of really fantastic titles um, already uh, available. And I'll go more as a, a stealth attendee. Okay. And I'll get to talk to people, and I'll get to walk around and chat people up and just hear what the buzz is that's going on. But I haven't put on a Kismet hat or Kismet shirt yet and said, come look at me. Uh, come look at this. Um, we might ramp up toward that. I've certainly done that before with other titles and other projects. Um, but I think I'm enjoying the freedom of 2017 of being just a, a, a pure writer. And then I will, of course, throw the switch and become a, uh, uh, a huckster uh, <laughs> once again. Happy to sign all of the books. Oh, happy, delighted. What's your name? And, and how do you spell that? And would your daughter like a copy, too? And Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's easy enough to turn on. Yeah, yeah. I also, I, 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 I can't hear, I was thinking it was Ken Hazer who said, it's like, I'll sign every, anything, even if I didn't do it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, I'll like, sign whatever you want. You want my signature on that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, alrighty. So, so Kismet is available for free online at awaveblueworld.com. And along with all of their other, uh, stories that, that they have broken down, very nicely organized. Um, so, um, I'm, I, I'll try not to, I don't want, since I don't want to like reveal spoilers, I won't ask. Like my, <laughs> my question is, is, you know, I want like, you know, a Dina centric story here, but I'm sure I won't be disappointed anyway. You're not going to be disappointed, and, you know, we could always, uh, I don't know how you edit and clip uh, Vodka Clock, but I could reveal something to you if you had a question that you would have to 
uh, excise from the interview to save for a later time. So I don't know how much post-production you <laughs> no, want to do. No, you know what? We'll just do it. We'll just have another, have you back, you know. Cool. We'll have cool, another cool. chat yep. anytime. Okay. Um, all right. So now I, I do want to hear about these other projects, though, um, because there's uh, the at Muslim Soups uh, Twitter handle. Yes, that's right. And uh, the Syria comic. I want to, I want to know what these are. Okay, so, uh, yeah, these are sort of my two other babies um, at the moment. Uh, the first one you mentioned, uh, the, the Twitter handle Muslim Soups, is connected to uh, a book I just co-edited uh, with uh, another scholar, Martin Lund. Um, and this is, again, more part of the scholarly collegiate academic life, but we tried to uh, do something that was readable for all. Uh, it's called Muslim Superheroes, Comics, Islam, and Representation. And uh, it's a full-length collection of essays from scholars both all around the country and even uh, internationally uh, looking at not just the rising number of uh, Muslim superheroes, but also what they're saying about this cultural moment, how they uh, operate in this market, uh, how their uh, interpretation may change or shift as they go to uh, international audiences. So, as you can imagine, Ms. Marvel uh, plays a, a large part there, but we uh, didn't want to offer you know, uh, Ms. Marvel Redux, uh, yeah. because a lot of people have written about it. Uh, we have uh, two really excellent chapters in the book, both about how Ms. Marvel was received in translation in France, oh. who has its, uh, where uh, the issue of uh, Muslims and headscarves is, is a heated one. They're trying to have a, be a very secular country uh, in total. And uh, we still have um, Muslims living there, uh, native-born even, uh, who want to wear, uh, to want to veil in public and how that might clash. Uh, the other chapter I think we have on Ms. Marvel uh, relates to the, the sexualization of superheroes and superheroines in general and how that might clash with uh, traditional uh, Islamic sensibilities. And even more of the book uh, looks at that nexus, which has always been interesting to me personally, of um, certainly there are Muslim heroes. Certainly Islam has an idea of heroism, just as Christianity does and just as, you know, civil American religion does. But uh, are there slippages? between the two. Are they necessarily, I'm not going to say that this is a clash of civilizations at all. I don't subscribe to that idea, but there are subtle differences that have to be negotiated. And so getting to look at characters like Knight Runner or Simon Boz or uh, Faiza Hazan uh, Excalibur or uh, even going into more independent characters like uh, Kahara or the 99, uh, Kismet, of course, Barack from Split Moon, uh, Split Moon Arts. Um, these are all places where the expectations of the genre and either the stereotypes or just the traditions of the religion um, have to be in dialogue, have to figure out how to work with each other. 
and we brought a lot of scholars together to to uh, attend right on that. And uh, uh, currently, it's already out. It's uh, published by Mizan, but uh, distributed by Harvard University Press. And the best part of it, here's the hucksterism, ready? Okay, okay. The best part of it, less than $25. Oh, nice. There you go. So it's, it's not one of those $90 textbooks yes. that no one ever wants to look at. This is yes. something that won't totally break the bank if uh, people are interested. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, that last part that you talked about, about the sexuality and sexualizing yes. of the characters, because um, even religion aside, it, it seems like taking a female character who's not sexualized is some kind of political stance and people are like yeah. no we just don't need backbreaking poses and tna all the time like you know um, like lazarus i don't know if you ever read lazarus um yes yes black yeah. magic and, uh, is another good one um, and uh faith came to mind also faith, yeah. comics faith um yeah i love this being challenged from you know any trajectory the religious trajectory or otherwise yeah, and it's not uh, that we're saying, you know, you know, butts are bad or anything like that. It's just, <laughs> you know, we've seen it and we know that there are places to get it. We just we want, you know, there there are uh, opportunities in the industry to have a range, you know. Exactly. And I also enjoy that M of the X-Men, Monet St. Croix, um who is a very bosomy, buxom, proud of her curvaceous body character, is also Muslim. So I'm not uh, looking strictly for this has to be chaste and absolutely without any uh, hint of sexuality. Uh, I more appreciate there being um, a spectrum and a diversity that reflects how people actually live rather than yeah. everyone poured into spandex or everyone in a burqa and there's no in between. Yeah. And um and as I said, like with your, your characters, Dina and Rabia, um their intelligence comes off so quickly and competently that you you know, it's if somebody in their head is sexualizing them, it's like, okay, well obviously they just have a real attraction for smart women, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think I write the women smarter than the men, and I can't tell if that's yeah. Uh, I can't tell if that's a misandry in, in its own <laughs> way, um, but just these—that's the way these characters happen um, to operate. Uh, you asked about the other project, the other one, the, the Syria, Syria project, Syria comic, yeah, yeah, um, and and this is kind of where I, I am acting a bit more like an activist. Uh, this is. I started a nonprofit organization. I never thought I would be the sort to start a nonprofit organization. But uh, the organization is called Comics for Youth Refugees Incorporated Collective. And in short, that forms the acronym CIRIC. And CIRIC's mission is to create free comic books for Syrian refugee children. Um, based on their own folklore, based on native Syrian folklore. Um, the whole thing basically came out of an idea. Um, I, I, my wife is hugely inspiring to me. And I said, what can I do? And when the refugee crisis was an 
absolutely full swing with uh, Aleppo and, and Ibid. Uh, what can I do? I'm not, you know, I can't do Doctors Without Borders, right? And uh, I'm not a legal expert, and I'm, I'm certainly don't have any military experience myself. All I can do is write comics. And she says, do that. I mean, yeah. could they benefit from that at all? And uh, what Cyric was formed to do was to basically give these kids their stories back, give them um, something tangible related to uh, where they've been displaced from and, and from their own society. I'm only stepping in with my team to um, actualize it, but I didn't want to write, uh, let's say, a superhero comic or a mystery comic or a, a kid's, uh, a kid's uh, funny animal comic with just my own sensibilities in mind. So we've been uh, raising money. I'm pleased to say we've raised uh, enough to uh, greenlight uh, artists, paying artists for their work at a, a non-profit doesn't mean non-paying. Right. Okay. Um, but we're going to be putting together a 64-page color version of the original uh, eight-page black and white idea I had uh, featuring a number of artists on Syrian folklore from all around that region, and we hope to raise enough funds where instead of releasing it digitally, that is, giving it to other charitable organizations that are working in Turkey or Germany or, or on the Syrian border, that we can actually raise enough to print and ship these. Uh, so they go right into the hands of uh, these children, these kids, in camps or in schools or in whatever country they've had to be relocated to. And how are you raising money? A few ways, uh, in fact. Um, first of all, we've been approaching foundations okay. uh, for, for grants or for matching uh, grants, and we've had uh, some success there. Uh, we've also been uh, partnering with some uh, crowdsource fundraising uh, platforms. Uh, right now, our main fundraising platform is Razu that holds an annual Giving Tuesday. This is the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. So after Black Friday and Cyber Monday, there's Giving Tuesday. Right, okay. And uh, people have been generous. Uh, people uh, just through Facebook links and Twitter links and a few press releases, um, there has been a, a modest stream of money coming in to at least – uh, encourage me and the board of directors and the rest of us that this is a, a going concern. So we'll continue uh, with the fundraising, with the goal being, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that the book is going to happen, whether it's an e-book, mm -hmm. um, which has its own uh, uh, benefits. I mean, it's lightweight. You don't have to worry about shipping containers and such. Uh, but also its own detriments that, you know, it requires electricity and uh, computers on the ground or iPads on the ground. I'd love to have both options. I'd love for us to raise enough money that we could just send these out physically and digitally to them. Um, Zurich has a long-term goal, I don't know if we'll ever get there, of um, actually publishing and creating comics 
by these kids, not Aww. just for these kids. That, that would be so sweet. Yeah, and, and um, I will say that a few other organizations are trying this, not necessarily in comics form, but there's um, From Syria with Love has been featuring uh, an art exhibition Mm-hmm. from uh, kids at various camps, but um, I, I continue to welcome and uh, ask for support on this because uh, it's one of the things uh, I can do and, and people can do. Okay, well, since I have you here, what would be a link where people can donate to this? All right, it is razoo.com slash Syric. That's R-A-Z-O-O. Dot com slash C-Y-R-I-C. We also have a website. It's a, it's a humble website. It's syriacomic.com, and okay. links can be found uh, there, of course. We will pump that up as there is more to pump up. But I think uh, both Giving Tuesday and perhaps um, I should also mention the upcoming 24-hour Comics Day, I believe uh, Christy Blanche of of Oh Yeah Comics uh, out in uh, Indiana is going to be doing an on-site fundraiser for us. So I, I couldn't be more delighted. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've never gotten to really do anything for 24-hour comics day because it's like, well, I'm a writer. What am I going to do, you know? But um, I love, you know, I, I, when when there are those uh, those dreaded cartoonists who can do everything. They can write and they can draw and they, and they can letter, like those Katie Cooks, those Katie Cooks that are out there. And, yeah. Uh, you know. I got introduced. I mean, there are some local ones here with the Boston Comics Roundtable. Uh, Cara Bean comes to mind and, and Sherry Parley. And just they, they have their whole studio yeah. within themselves. And like, God bless them. I, that's, yeah. that's not my ability. I know. That is so amazing. So for Syria, well, for Syric, I should say, for Syric, um, uh, who makes up your board of directors? Do you have people that are over in these regions, or is this local people? We have um, a number of consultants, people that um, are on site and working with uh, the Red Cross, Red Crescent, UNICEF, Oxfam, that have been great in offering us a lot of input, a lot of best mental health practices, what triggers to avoid for these kids, what they uh, would be most uh, appropriate for their mental health status. The board of directors uh, really is is largely my friends and family, people that I felt I could immediately trust um well you mentioned your wife that you know yeah she's on board uh she's a member also uh one of my highly activist uh neighbors who i adore and um a fellow scholar and colleague of mine hussein rashid uh who is out in new york is also uh on the board and you know if this goes gangbusters, you know, that would be beautiful. Uh, the board would expand to include uh, a, a wider array of views and opinions. But just to make it kosher, make it legal, make it 501c3, I, uh, I ask these trusted individuals on. Was it really difficult to set up? You know, it's funny you should ask that. Um, it really wasn't. Okay. It really wasn't, and I, I always, I'm always a little suspicious of this because <laughs> I felt like it should have been more difficult. 
Um, it was a three-step process, largely speaking. I live in Massachusetts, so there were only really three steps that needed to be taken. First, you had to establish that you are a nonprofit organization with uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and that can be done entirely online, and I think for, don't quote me, but a $25 fee. Um, the next step is you contact the IRS to get an EIN, basically the equivalent of a Social Security number right. for your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, uh, if you have all your materials together, they're not asking for anything bizarre, insane. If you have a good idea and a well-written-out mission statement and aims and plan, then you already have all you need. The only part that took any real time and any real money was applying for 501c3 status, meaning that any money we received can be taken off of other people's taxes. Um, But that process, too, though it was a little more costly, I want to say that was more $425, $450, um, took place within a month's time. And uh, you can operate as a 501c3 while your application is under consideration. Oh, okay. That still sounds Uh, like a lot of money (laughs) to me. No, no, $450 is a lot of money. There is absolutely no question. And it really was, I think it's important that it feels like a lot of money because it was like, are you really doing this? Yes. Or Be, yeah. are you just screwing around? Because any, you know? anybody could just could just do it. Yeah, but yeah. Exactly. And I suppose you could be taking donations and saying, look, we're, we are going to file. This isn't deductible yet, but, you know, maybe, you know, crowdfund a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think if you have um, some, you know that donations will come early on, right? You can sort of budget ahead for that, uh, for that for the fees that are involved. But yeah, I think you want some, um, you want some skin in the game. Uh, one thing I will say is that, uh, we were quite careful in the way we named this. While this project is focused on Syria, the organization is not Syria specific. I mean, you have the comics for Youth Refugees Incorporated Collective. This could be expanded to refugees from Yemen. This could be expanded exactly. to refugees from Cuba. And uh, heaven forbid this ever happens, refugees from states in the, uh, right here in the U.S. Right. Um, I think not naming it Syria-specific also helped it through the pipeline, uh, where it may have gotten other scrutiny if it was particularly uh, naming a foreign country. Absolutely. And, and, but that, you know, it doesn't lock you in either. So you have the freedom for, for creating purposes. And that's really important because, I mean, it's so traumatic. I can't, I honestly, I cannot imagine what it's, what it's like for the people going through it because it's like the, you know, we were talking about Kismet in 1944. We're talking about, you know, when people had to literally stick their children on trains to try to go find a safe house with strangers they might not know or maybe distant relatives in some other country. And, you know, and it's like these breaking up the families. And then what we saw in today's world is Mm -hmm. these just awful, awful images of children on, you know, dead bodies on the beaches and, you know, the, I, the kid I in know. the chair covered in the ashes. I know. I'm like, oh. how many times do we have to see this picture of this little boy covered in ashes or the little boy face down in the beach? It just seemed like like there was 
like a, like a porn type of quality about oh, how many times they were showing it. Like just it was disaster porn. Disaster it was. Porn. I mean, there's there a, there's a term for it. And um, part of the reason I did this is while I saw a lot of people in the comics community wanting to do something to help, trying to help, but it being so focused on our audience, right? Yeah. Things mm. that are being created for those who aren't suffering. It informs us. It raises our awareness. I'm not questioning anyone's motivations, but ultimately it was being targeted in the wrong direction. It was just becoming more disaster porn. I'd like to believe that I'm a nice person <laughs> somewhere underneath all this, but um, if I didn't have kids and didn't you know, see my own kids in uh, these pictures, you know, like imagining them into it and what could happen to them, and I want to protect them. I, I don't know that I would have taken this as far as I have, um, mm -hmm. but uh, the idea that the unimaginable can uh, happen to children, can happen to families, uh, it, it sort of has forced my hand. Yeah, um, and it's and it's one of those things where even with our adoption processes, how they wanted to stop adoptions from China, you know, it's like, oh, come on. And, you know, it's like they're just kids. They're just, you know, it's like they're just kids. They just need a family. And, um, it, it, you know, it's hard enough when they're not when they're not babies, because, mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the things is it, with the adoptions is people. It's like a new car. The people that, you know, refu refuse to buy a, a car that's like two or three years old because they, you know, they don't know what's wrong with it yet. That's right. That's what they think. There's got to be something wrong with it if it's six years old. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. It's in a lot of ways. so heartbreaking. And, and, in fact, I mean, it'll be after the fact by the time this episode comes out but you know the annual fundraiser for comic fusion for the last couple of years has been for helping the advocates who um represent children on uh, from foster family systems because and they do three counties i mean this one office has to cover for three counties and the advocates are volunteers That's so amazing. it's like you know like somebody has to go stand up for these kids and, and you know, and talk to all of the heavy hitters involved and say, like, look, this is the best thing for this child, you know, doing this and doing this and doing this. So, uh, it's, it's there, there's a piece of me that's rather cynical, you know, uh, even though I want to do good things. And I, I think I was uh, shaped uh, early on. This is before um, he became a really sort of conservative crank. But uh, I grew up watching Dennis Miller on Saturday Night Live <laughs> and his stand-up specials, okay? And he said one thing that rang so true to me um, as an adolescent, as a teenager, and just sticks with me. Uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, adults doing bad things to other adults, we get it. Yeah. Like, that's how the world goes. That's tough, but life is tough, wear a cup. Um, but then he says, if you're going to do something to a kid, to an innocent, to a child, uh, I'm sorry. You've got to take yourself out of the game. You've you got to kill yourself. I'm sorry. Uh, now, I don't take it to that extreme, obviously. But, um, and, you know, I don't, not suggesting anyone go out and hurt themselves. But right. uh, I do say that I have, my sympathies are with 
kids and not with fellow adults messing up fellow adults. Yeah, and I think, and you know, some of that, how do I say this um, without sounding preachy, um, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where then a lot of times, like, the adult adults in need are just, uh, that's when you start getting into the, oh, that person must be lazy, oh, that person's breaking oh, yeah. the law, and it's like, you know, like we've seen with Ferguson and... Um, the New York police and and everything. It's like, you know, somebody's selling cigarettes for a buck a piece or something like that. It's like, yeah, it's against uh, the law. But you know what? Are they running like a child porn ring? You know? Oh, absolutely. Like, right. You know, it's just there's so many things. So, you know, there's. Uh, and, you know, maybe I said it a little too harshly before. Behind these adults is probably some sort of traumatic childhood. So I think that instead of, you know, don't misunderstand me as condemning all adults oh, to no, whatever I'm problems not. they face. Yeah, no. I think we have to start with helping kids so that we can build them into And that's just it. Uh, then, then build you, them into adults. Um, I, you know, I, keep, I, I still see these things where abstinence-only education is a requirement. And <sighs> one of my friends just tweeted it, and she's like, even my kid, who is this young, knows that this doesn't work. That this education is bullshit. <laughs> right. That's right. So, um, yeah. So there's just adults have their own problems. But if we could attack these problems when they are children, then hopefully we would have a better world in the future, even though we will all be dead. Mm. That's going to happen anyhow. I mean, yeah. we're going to be dead anyhow, one way or the other. What you leave behind seems to be, you know, vital. Yeah, absolutely. Um but I've I've really loved this conversation, and then I t I totally want to know more, and I will go do my my own research looking up um, these projects in more detail because I think they sound fascinating. So um, before I let you go, Dave, where uh, let's get all of your all your deets. Where okay. <laughs> where do you okay. like where do you like people to follow you and know stuff and find out what's going on? I'm a Twitter addict. So finding me on Twitter uh, at A.D. Lewis, my initials, A.D. Lewis, uh, is always a nice way to tap in. There's my website of miscellaneous stuff, which is captionbox.net. Uh, my scholarship there, my comics there, some of my speaking engagement stuff there. But um, if people are going to waste time on the Internet with me, I'd say go look at Kismet at uh, awaveblueworld.com. Come check out what we're doing at Syria Comics, uh, Syria Comic, excuse me, uh, dot com. And um, go on Amazon and buy Muslim superheroes, uh, or at least ask your copy, uh, ask your library to get a copy, and then check a copy out from the library. Good, good, absolutely. Um I've loved this, and I know, and thank you for rescheduling while I was basically sleeping through an entire afternoon. No, that's cool. I knew this would be a fun discussion. I haven't caught every single vodka clock, but the ones that I've heard, I've really enjoyed. So I knew this would be, I knew this would be lovely. Well, you're definitely welcome back. You know, because we we're going to have to do an update with as the story progresses. That's how, hey, I promise. That sounds great. Okay. All right. Well, Dave, I will be seeing you on Twitter. I'll be there. All right. You guys can follow me on Twitter as well at Elizabeth Amber. 
sometimes, yeah, I get political most of the time. I also post pictures of my cats. <laughs> um, a lot of that is at uh, Instagram, at Amber Unmasked. And, yeah, please go buy my books, too. <laughs> if you look up the Pharaoh Weathers Mysteries, um, that's probably the easiest way to find them. Uh, Amazon is the easiest. Um, also, Barnes & Noble's. Um, but Amazon's the easiest. Let's face it. They're the giant. Um, yeah. So that's just the way it is. But um, And, uh, you know, anything else you can find out at amberunmasked.com. I would really love the support at patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And if you can't contribute monthly, I perfectly understand. Just, um, you know, when you have a moment for the click, just click like a retweet or something, help get the word out, and that'd be great. So, um, once again, thanks to Dave for joining us today. Thank you. 